The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And while you're looking for that text, I want to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. And this is a passage that Paul wrote in consideration of the constant pressures he faced in the opposition to the preaching of the gospel of Christ. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 8, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. There were no easy mission fields for Paul. It was hardly a time of rest. No matter where he traveled, he was always hounded by the hatred of those who would not tolerate the preaching of the cross. And yet the great need of those perishing without Christ urged him onward. And though he wrote that he was troubled and distressed and that he was often perplexed by those who couldn't see the great spiritual need they had, he kept pressing on to tell them about Christ and he went all through all that pain and suffering because he knew that it was only temporary and that there was a reward that comes that is eternal. But there was also something else that was very deeply personal and motivational for Paul about his mission, and that was the bonds of friendship and the mutual love that was forged between him and those who became followers of Jesus Christ. Now, our text today expresses this closeness and the personal attachment that he felt to these people, and their reception of the gospel was reason for him to rejoice, although it cost him much personal pain. And so we look in these scriptures in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I, I want us to start reading in verse number 14 just to kind of put the thought together. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 14, For ye brethren became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Several weeks ago, I, I preached from the last verse in chapter 1 
I divided that passage into two messages. The first was about the many essential doctrines of the faith that are taught in that verse. And then the second sermon was a more pointed discussion about just one doctrine, and that was the doctrine of hell. After the second message, Matt had a comment. Matt's not here today. But he said, the first message that I preached was uplifting and it was positive. But in the second, I had returned to my wheelhouse. That's not an exact quote, but he meant that I preach or don't often preach uh, uplifting sermons. Most of my sermons are beat-down sermons. So I thought that today I would try to satisfy Matt, even though he's not here, and preach something sweet. Uh, He usually feels bad about himself after I preach, and so I hope today's sermon will be an encouragement to all of you that need a, a certain spiritual massage therapy. But in all seriousness, this this is a wonderful text. This is a very sweet text, and it's not something that you can preach negatively. This is about the close relationship that Paul had with those that he ministered to, that he felt compassionately towards them. He was loving towards them. He, He just really loved his converts, and his feelings just seemed to gush out of this text with all sincerity, Although in the first part of this chapter, he was accused of being anything but sincere. Now you remember in the first part of this chapter, there were false charges that were swirling about. There were accusers that said that he didn't care about the people. That he was, he just ran out of town. He hadn't been back. His enemy said that he wasn't genuine, that he was a cheater. He was a charlatan. He was a fly-by-night huckster, religious huckster that was only in it for money and sexual favors. But Paul refuted those charges and he invited the Thessalonians to, to look back on the time that he was with them and he asked them just to inspect his behavior and to see that he'd never taken advantage of anyone. Not like preachers that you see today in many churches that are always after people for their money. Paul was never taking advantage of anyone, but he said, you, you could see that I supported myself, that I worked there, that I never took anything from you or asked anything of you. He never cheated and he never lied. He was never deceitful. He was authentic. And it was the power of God in them that was proved by the change that took place in their lives that he truly was the man of God. The gospel had given these people hope. And for sure, it brought them uh, troubles, the same kind of troubles that Paul experienced that he went through. But also, they had this hope in Christ. And now, they're waiting for Christ to return and deliver them from their enemies. And the Word of God says they would be delivered from the wrath to come. Then if you look back in verse number 8 here in chapter 2, he said, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were very dear unto us. So he was willing not only to give them the message of Christ, to expend uh, the time that it takes to tell people about Jesus Christ, But he said, I am also willing to give you my life. If it's necessary, I will give my life for you. Now, I would say that is a remarkable statement, especially when we consider how short the time was. What a small interval of time that Paul had to spend with these Thessalonian people. How is it that Paul became so endeared to them? And why wasn't he just happy to get out of town because he was constantly pursued, his enemies wanted to kill him? Why not just leave town and forget about these people? 
Well, the answer is the gospel of God in verse number 2. It's the trust of the gospel in verse number 4. It's the ministry of Christ, friends, that is always a ruling disposition of love. It's the outworking of the two great commandments that Jesus gave to his people. And that is to love God and to love our fellow man. Now, I want to discuss that today and some more of the issues that Paul faced as he ministered to these people. I have three observations from this text. All of them begin with the letter H. And if you look very closely, you can find them in this text without much trouble. Our first observation is verse number 17, which is the heart of the apostle. Our first word here is heart. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Now, our last message was about verses 14 through 16, in which Paul abruptly stopped in his praise of the Thessalonians to consider the hatred of his enemies. He was run out of town because the Jews in the synagogue had stirred up the city leaders against him. Now, in Acts chapter 17, the history of this visit to Thessalonica is recorded. And I'd like you to turn to Acts 17, and we'll look at this very briefly. I want to read the account of Paul's visit to this church, or this city. And there's also some information here that's useful for later in the message to explain why Paul hadn't been back to visit the city. So we look in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 5, and here is this account of Paul's visit. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellers of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also." whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also, or they went there as well, and stirred up the people. And so we see the chief opposition against Paul was not Gentiles. Here in this text, Paul doesn't focus on them. He said it was the Jews that killed Jesus, and they were active to prevent him from preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now we notice again back in our text in 1 Thessalonians in that 17th verse that Paul begins this verse, but we, but we. And that's a contrast to the Jews in the earlier verses that wanted to prevent the salvation of Gentiles. And so he says to the church, but we, brethren, we're not like them. But we, brethren, we care for you. We, brethren, were willing to give our lives for you. We, brethren, desire to see you. We want to be with you but we were taken away from you. Now, the Greek phrase here, the word that he used for being taken from you, is not used in any other place of the New Testament. This is a word that means to be orphaned, like a child that's been taken away from its parents, torn from its parents. 
He said, we were ripped away from you. Now, one of the interesting aspects of this word is the broadness of its meaning. Paul flipped the usage around to say that we are parents that are ripped away from our children. And so rather than saying the children are orphaned, he said, we as parents are orphaned. Our children have been taken away from us, and we are orphaned parents. Now, that's a very odd usage. But you remember, in this chapter, he spoke of being a nursing mother who cares for her child. And he says, I'm like a father who comforts his children. And so it was fitting that Paul would return to this motif that he is a spiritual parent who has been forced to leave children that he loved behind. If you're a parent that's ever been separated from your children, you know the scars that come from that. You know the deep wounds that separation causes. And the amazing, remarkable aspect of this word is that there was such a short interval of time that Paul spent with them. And he cared so deeply about them that when he was separated from these converts in Christ, he felt he had been scarred. His soul was scarred because they were ripped away from his loving embrace. Now, if he was the charlatan that his enemy said he was, he would have walked in and out of that place without a second thought for their welfare. After all the troubles that he experienced there, he would have shaken the dust of his feet off against them. And the testimony that he didn't is the testimony of the life-changing effects of the gospel. The gospel changes our affinity towards others. The gospel makes an inward change in us. It makes a heart change in us. And it also affects us outwardly in the relationship that we have with others who believe as we do. There are bonds of friendship that are forged among people, a group of people just like we have here in Berean Baptist Church, people that might never have met each other before in any other circumstance, but now they care and they love for each other. There are family words that describe this. Christians, you've already noticed it today, that we speak of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are, we're brethren. And it's biblical to use those words. Pastors will use words like beloved or dearly beloved when they address the congregation. John the Apostle was fond of calling his converts his dear children. And those are, those are Christian words. Those are, those are words that we, that we don't recall any secular use of these terms by people that are not related unless this comes from a Christian heritage. And so when Paul was separated from him, there was pain in his heart because he loved them that much. And he said, I can't be present with you, but you are always in my heart. And isn't that what we say about people that we love? Don't we say things like this? Time and space may separate us, but we always say, I think of you and you're in my heart. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, doesn't it? Doesn't the Bible even tell us that? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. It was 20 years ago this year that my father died. There's not a day that goes by when he's not in my heart. I remember when I was very young, and this is a, a distant memory because I was maybe four or five years old, I remember that my, that my uncle married a vile woman. He and his wife were basically scoundrels, and they had a baby. And when this child was about six months old, they abandoned her. And they brought her to our house, 
and they dropped her off with my mom. My mom took this little girl in. Her, her name was Elizabeth. And for a year, she took this little baby and she loved her with full intention that this child would become her own, that she would be her child. And she would raise this child and she would be a, a sister to us kids. And my mom loved her and treated her as her own. And then one day, after being gone for a year, off partying somewhere and not caring at all about this baby, my uncle showed up and he wanted Elizabeth back. And my mom and dad couldn't do anything about it. There was no adoption. And so they took that little baby and they ripped her away from my mom's clinging arms. And I, I remember the tears and the sorrow that Elizabeth was taken and there was this hole that was in my mom's heart for many, many months because that little baby was gone. And I don't remember that we ever got to see Elizabeth again. You can't see this in the English of this text, but this is what the Greek says. This is how Paul felt. He wasn't birth family to these people. He was Christian family. He was family in Jesus Christ. He loved them, but he was torn from them. You see, the gospel changes you in areas like this. The gospel causes inexplicable attachments to people that believe like you. That happens in church. It happens especially to pastors that love their people. A pastor hates to see people go. You don't want to be separated from people that you've seen take in the word and they've grown in the word and you become friends with them and especially spiritual friends. I mean, like a parent that will take a child and stand him up against the, the, the side of a door and make a mark to see how much that child has grown. Some of you might have done that at home. Well, in a spiritual way, a pastor does that. He marks the growth of his dear children that he teaches and, and preaches to in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I don't often preach this way, and, and so you need to listen to what I have to say. But I, I remember there were, there were a, a day a few years ago when Jason uh, sat with me at the round table in my office. And as we, we sat there, he said, we've got to go. We, we've got to leave and move away. And I remember as we were talking, my heart sank to the floor. I, I can't remember anything worse in a relationship except it was the death of my father several years ago. I mean, I felt this way about it. I was troubled about it. And I think that you understand that relationship, that, that we're family. And maybe there are times that you detect there's a, a bit of favoritism from me about Jason. We aren't natural family. We're church family. Years ago, when the forum class was about 10 or 15 of us, and we were back over there in that corner in room number 9 before that room was divided, it was in that class that I first introduced the class to the doctrines of grace. And I remember how that Jason took hold of that teaching. And then in other things, in the form class, he became the foremost defender of the King James Bible. Back in those days, you could meet Jason in the Christian bookstore on commerce. And Jason was hiding out there to ambush people that were choosing other Bibles beside the King James. But I remember those days. And when I became a pastor, Jason stood right there behind me. Others could see that. I remember when I went to visit Hazel and Claude when Hazel was sick and we were talking and she said, Jason is your Timothy. Paul had his Timothy and she said, Jason is your Timothy. 
And I didn't know why out of the blue that she would say that, but from then on, she always called Jason my Timothy because she could see that there was that, that special, uh, uh, special thing in that relationship. And so when Jason came to me and told me that they had to go, I could relate to Paul because that's the way that I felt. I felt like an orphaned parent that was bereaved of my children. So they left, and I began to, to think about him and Sheila and the little kids that had grown up in the nursery or been in the nursery. And, and that was a painful thought. And I thought about this the other day, and it hadn't occurred to me until I was working on this message, that of all the people that left Berean and moved away from us, they're the only ones that I had the opportunity to visit. Uh, Pam and I went to visit them while they were in South Carolina. Now, that's not to say, of course, that I wouldn't come to see any of you if you left, but I, I just remember this was a strange thing, that they were the only people that I traveled to see. And you ought not to make more of that than, than you should, because I know there are already some of you think that there's this massive cover-up of Jason's sins that I do. <laughs> but after, after six years, I heard that Jason was coming back. Jason and the family was coming back. And I'll tell you, I couldn't hardly wait. I couldn't hardly wait. That was joyful news. Now my heart's uplifted. And would you look here at verse number 17 again? Paul said, I endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Paul wanted to go back. In fact, he was trying everything that he could to go back. He could write letters to them, but that's not like seeing them face to face. We understand it. Skype, you know, that's great when we want to talk to the grandkids. It's nice to hear their voices on the telephone. We can text them, and, but we know that's not good enough. You want to see the person that you love face to face. Well, I've told you before that one of the hard habits I have to break is answering questions and advising people through emails. I hate to deal with church problems in emails. And the reason is that people can't see your face. They, they can't judge the way that you say things. They don't see the furrowed brow and the expressions that you have, the pained expressions on your face, and the compassion that you might have trying to direct them in the way that they ought to go. Almost always, the way that that thing works out, they take it wrong. Uh, they get something from you, and when the emotions are all gone out of that in an email, they can't tell exactly the way that you feel. So there's nobody that goes blessed and away blessed and happy from that kind of encounter. So many times we'll say this, we can't have this conversation in an email. We can't have this conversation over the phone. We've got to talk to one another face to face. Paul could exchange letters, but that doesn't fill the heart like seeing somebody that you love face to face. He wanted that fellowship. He wanted a hug from them. He wanted to embrace them. Here's another bad habit that I have, not just answering emails like that, but uh, I've been told that I shouldn't do this in this age of sexual harassment and hashtag me too. You don't dare touch anybody. But I've always had a habit of shaking the hand and putting my hand on someone's back or touching their arm. There are some people that want to give me a hug on the way out of the door. And you, some of you may have observed this, that uh, since the time that Amaya and Angela were little girls, I always hugged them on the way out. Now they're grown, and somebody said, well, you ought not to do that. But I still hug them on the way out. And parents, you, you know what this is like when, you're, when you love your kids and, and if you have to be separated from them. Some of you have sent kids off to college. There's an empty spot there when that child is gone. 
Nathan, our son, left a few years ago to go to the Navy, but his room in our house is still his room. And we don't touch that room because he says that room is his home. When he comes home, that's his home, that room, so we don't change the room. On, on my way to the bedroom, our bedroom, I never fail to look inside of his room. The door's always open, so I look inside and I imagine that I would see him sitting there on the bed as he used to do, but he's not there. Occasionally, I walk into the room and just stand there and look around. Sometimes I'll open the closet door just to look at the clothes that are left there. Those are just memories. That, that's the sense in this text. After knowing these people for only a few weeks, the Apostle Paul felt ripped away from him. And I'm telling you, folks, you can't get that kind of love and attachment unless you know Jesus Christ. You don't get it without him. People of the world don't understand this. Now, I'll give you another example, and I'll warn you, we're going to go a little bit long today. Back in the spring, we went to visit Nathan in D.C., and I went into a Dunkin' Donuts you know my love of donuts. I went into a Dunkin' Donuts and I ordered and then Pam and I sat down. And there was a fellow behind me that I heard whispering. Uh, he was saying something over and over. And I turned around to look and he had a Bible open. And he was memorizing Bible verses. So I got up and I went over to speak to him and to ask him if he was a Christian, if he was a saved man. And it turns out that he was the pastor of a Baptist church nearby. And so we began to talk and we began to share some things. He was a stranger to me and I to him, but we had no problem just sitting there talking and sharing our experiences. And then the subject of my wife's illness came up and we talked about that. And then shortly there in Dunkin' Donuts, we had a prayer meeting where he prayed for my wife. Later after we left, we went up into Canada and We'd driven through Toronto and then on up into Ontario. We drove across to re-enter the United States at Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. And there was a call on my phone, and I missed the call, but I got the voicemail. And it was that pastor. And he said, I've just been thinking about you. And I, and I wanted you to know that I'm still praying for you. And I want to know how your trip is going. Three months later, that pastor called me at home and on the phone. You know what we did? We prayed for my wife. And I told him that I planned to be back in the D.C. area. And he threw out the idea of me coming to preach at his church. Now you wonder, how does that happen? I mean, after speaking to me for only about 20 minutes in Dunkin' Donuts, now there's a friendship. Now there's a common bond that exists between us. And I know it's not the donuts. It doesn't have the power to do it. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has that power. So you meet Christians in your in your in your daily life. And have you ever noticed there's that instant connection with someone who is a believer in Jesus? Have you noticed this, that you'll just get that look in your eye, you'll look at them, they'll look at you, and you know we have something in common. We have something precious in common. And there is this immediate attraction for people who are believers in Jesus Christ. And again, folks, that's something the world simply cannot understand. How do we have such an attraction for each other? Well, I could go through many scriptures and many stories. Paul taught this, especially John taught it. He was called the apostle of love, and he had this tight, caring relationship with his people. And, and 
this, is te- this text shows the same thing. It, it shows how a pastor should love his people. And I'll admit to you, as I read this text, I am a lot colder than Paul. I'm a colder person than Paul was. Often people comment about this. When I shake their hands, my hands are cold. And I always say, well, that's because I have a cold heart. But I'll tell you, I love the people of Berean Baptist Church. I don't like to be separated from you. You're my people. You're the people that I love. And, and you're present in my heart no matter where I am. So if I go away, I, it might be a vacation. But it's not a vacation away from my church. I think about the people here. I think about what's going on here. You can't have a service while I'm not wondering when I'm away how things are going with you. Then after I'm gone, I come back and I look for your faces. Usually you're all sitting in the same spot. You're in the same seats. So I know exactly where to look. And as I've told you before, don't change seats. I need to be up here and be comfortable with who I'm looking at and know where I can find you if I want to speak particularly to you in a sermon. So, so this is the whole thing, folks. You, you, you just love to see your people. That's the heart of the apostle. But I've got to hurry. I've got to go on. There's a lot more to this sermon. Have you found the second H? Anybody look for the second H? There's another one. The first is heart. And the second is hindrance. It's the hindrance of Satan. Verse number 18. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Well, this is a very big topic. And and I, I really don't have time to do it justice in the time that we have left. Why hadn't Paul been back to Thessalonica? That's a great question. And he only answers it with this much explanation. Satan hindered us. Now, this is another interesting word that English doesn't adequately explain. Hindered or thwarted, as it's sometimes translated in newer versions. The word actually means to to cut a trench in the road to make it impassable. Well, that's fascinatingly descriptive, I think. As, As much as you may love the King James Bible, it doesn't have the ability to express things like the Greek does. And that's one of the reasons that Greek was chosen as the language of the New Testament. But the meaning of this word hindered is to cut a trench, to dig a deep trench in the road to impede travel. This is what someone might do to an invading army. They would tear up the stones in the road and they would dig a deep, wide trench that was hard for an army to pass over. Now, if you live in Sonoma County, especially in Petaluma, you would call that, well, that's just a normal pothole. Uh, That's your highway tax dollars at work. Thank you, Governor Brown, for the tax gas, or gas tax, rather. But Satan hindered Paul. That's what he said. And, and he stopped him from going. Now, there's lots of questions that arise from this. How much power does Satan have? What does Satan have the ability to do? Well, apparently he has this much power. He hinders Christians. He impedes ministers of the gospel. He stops spiritual progress. At the beginning of this missionary journey, you remember in Acts chapter 16, that it was the Holy Spirit that hindered Paul. His intention was to go someplace else, but the Holy Spirit stopped him and said, No, I want you to go to Macedonia. So sometimes Satan, or rather the Holy Spirit, will will hinder our best laid plans. 
And we read other times in the Scriptures where the Holy Spirit stops us from doing things that we would otherwise do. Now, if that shoots down your theories and your hopes of free will, so be it. You've got to deal with that. You are not in control. God is in control. But Paul doesn't say here that it was the Holy Spirit that stopped him from going back. He says, this is Satan. And there are spiritual truths that we extract from this. And part of these truths is this fact that the Holy Spirit is a real person and Satan is a real person. Sometimes we forget that. And we think that good and evil, well, these are just two opposite forces. They have a life of their own. No, folks. Good and evil are sourced from two distinct personalities. Good against evil is a conflict between two personal spiritual realities. There is a real devil and there is a great God and they are in constant conflict. So every evil that you do or every good that you do is a conscious choice that you make to follow God or to follow Satan. That's good versus evil. Now I hope you understand that, that when you choose to sin, you choose Satan over God. You go to Satan, you align yourself with him, that's not benign, friends. That is an active choice that people make. I'm going to follow Satan rather than God. Now let me show you this in 2 Corinthians 6. If you want to turn there, Paul shows that good and evil are not just the will of man, not just forces of the universe. Good against evil is a conflict of two persons. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Now you see it here. There are believers and there are unbelievers. There is righteousness and unrighteousness. There's light and there's darkness. And then how does Paul conclude? Ultimately these end in the two main opposites, Christ and Belial. Belial is Satan. And every act that happens on the earth, at the bottom of it, is either Christ or Satan. Paul said he wanted to go back to Thessalonica. He had compassion for them. He had the will to go back. And it wasn't the Holy Spirit that stopped him. It was Satan. So God gives Satan latitude. Satan is called the God of this world. He's not sovereign God. But he is called the God of this world. He operates with only as much power as God gives him. And we don't understand all of that. We don't understand the hows and the whys of that. We don't understand how God works and why he does things the way that he does. But we do know this, that everything is going to work out for his ultimate purpose and his glory. You may remember going in the Old Testament, Job had his miserable friends. You remember that Moses had his Janus and Jambres. And you remember that Paul in the New Testament has his Hymenaeus and Alexander. These are opposing forces, opposing people, and God allowed them to cause discouragements. Paul said Satan has many wiles. The word means he has many methods of attack. He uses false prophets. He uses false friends. He uses your family members. He uses temptations. He uses lies and deceit. Even fools by transforming himself, the Bible says, an angel of light. We can't even imagine the numbers of tricks that Satan has. He knows so much and you know so little. He has many methods of attack, but you have only one method of defense. 
There's only one thing that you can use against him. There's only one thing that will defeat him. You must go to God. You must depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. You must take the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit and the helmet of salvation. That's what Paul did. He was delayed by Satan. Satan cut a trench in the road and Paul couldn't get there. But Paul also wrote this wonderful encouragement in Romans 16. He said, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Martin Luther, in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, wrote, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Satan may have the upper hand at times, but his doom is sure. What specifically hindered Paul? Well, some say that Satan stirred up much trouble in other churches so that Paul was preoccupied. There was so much going on that he just couldn't go to Thessalonica to help them. And Paul wrote this letter to this church from Corinth, and that was one of the most troubling of all the churches in the New Testament. Some say it was that thorn in the flesh that Paul described We don't know what it was, but Paul said it was a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Maybe it was a disease, maybe it was an illness, we we just don't know. There's an interesting theory that there was a law that was passed that stopped Paul from going back. If he showed up there, he was to be immediately arrested. Still others say that it was this prominent disciple in the city named Jason, the man in Acts 17 that helped Paul, And I had us to read Acts 17 so that you would remember that there it says that they took surety of Jason. In other words, probably they took a payment that guaranteed that Paul would not come back to the city. And if he did, then they would take Jason and they would probably put him to death. So Jason became the surety for Paul and Paul wouldn't go back because he didn't want this disciple to be put to death. So Paul's departure might have been a legal issue. It might have been a death threat against a prominent disciple. We just don't know. All we know is that he wanted to go back, but Satan hindered him. Now we've seen the heart of the apostle. We've seen the hindrance of Satan. Have you found the third H? Hope, somebody says. The third H is hope. And this is the hope of the pastor. Verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Now the big question, after reading everything that Paul went through, is why did he do it? What is there to gain for him? He was beaten in Macedonia. He was run out of town. They might have passed a law to keep him from preaching. Perhaps his presence there endangered others, and it might well have done that with Jason. So why did he call the Thessalonians his hope? There's no hope in Thessalonica. His presence brought pain and suffering to him. It brought that to everyone associated with him. So where is their hope here? One author wrote, Everyone looks at least a certain distance into the future and projects something into it to give it reality and interest to himself. That is his hope. It may be the return he expects from investments of money. It may be the expansion of some scheme he has set on foot for the common good. It may be his children on whose love and reverence 
or on whose advancement in life he covets for the happiness of his declining years. Now you think about that. What, what did Paul have? He has no money. He has no retirement. There's no children that will comfort him in his old age. There's nothing worldly that he looks forward to to give him hope in his last days. So what is the certain thing in the future that he had hope of? Well, it's only this. It can be only this. To see the Thessalonians grow in their faith, to see their sanctification, to see the last vestiges of idolatry taken out of their lives, everything worked out of them. It was to see them grow up in Christ and then stand in the presence of God for eternity, redeemed, glorified, sanctified, and praising God forever. Paul says, you are my joy. And that's another interesting word. This is just a fascinating word study in many places that the word joy here actually means boasting. You are my boasting. Not a prideful boasting, but a boast of the power of God in them. They were his crown of rejoicing. There the word crown is stephanos. That means a crown like a wreath that's given to the victor at the Olympic Games. So he says these, these are the rewards that we will receive in glory. So Paul believed that each of them was a reward. It was a crown, a prize in glory. And he wanted to receive that prize that God had promised to those who do God's work, who love him and his work. Psalm 126 says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again. Rejoicing, with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Had Paul sown in tears? We see it here, I think, that his heart is broken about these converts in Thessalonica. He's wrenched away from them, so his heart is saddened, it's broken. His tears flowed. He gave his all to see these people saved. He said, I'm a nursing mother to to bereaved of my children. This is his hope. This is his future. It's to see them in heaven And then to point to them and say, Dear Lord, I have sown in tears. Dear Lord, these are the sheaves that I brought with me. And that's the hope of the pastor. It's to see the dear ones in glory that have been taught to love God and His Word. Friends, you've been patient to hear me out this morning. And let me conclude by saying, there's hardly a person that doesn't have some hope for the future. It may be your children. It might be your financial investments, or it may not be anything substantial. It's just simply the hope that things will get better. Most have a future hope that's not very realistic. You see, regardless of how you feel about those things, and whether you're sure of those things, you can be sure about this. You will stand before God someday. Someday in the future, you're going to meet God. The prophet Amos said, prepare to meet thy God. And in the day that you stand before God, your best hope will be realized or your best hope will be dashed to pieces. And do you know what determines which hope will be realized? Well, it goes back to these two personalities. Either you yielded to Christ or you yielded to Satan. And I want you to be very much aware those aren't equal personalities. We've already seen that Satan will be bruised under the feet of believers. Revelation says that Satan will be cast into hell. There is no hope if you go his way. There is no glory, there is no crown, there is no rejoicing, there is nothing but hell. 
Who hinders you from coming to Christ? Satan does, but all he can do is hinder. He can't stop you. He can't stop you forever because the power of salvation is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of salvation is belief in Him, repentance of sin and belief in Him. Now, I hope I've encouraged you today. It's a blessing to have new relationships because you are a believer. The chief one is that you have God as your Father. You have Christ as your brother. You have the Holy Spirit as your comforter. And then added to that is this wonderful blessing of having brothers and sisters in Christ. You love them. They love you. They'll care for you. They'll comfort you. They help you when you're sick. They'll be there when you need them. You get attached to them. And friends, that is the blessing that we call church. Love them because you'll be with them forever in heaven. And so as your pastor, I say, my dear children, you are our crown of rejoicing. You are our glory and joy. And we might be perplexed sometimes why people in the church don't always do what they should do, what's always best for them. We might complain about that, but we're not defeated by it. We're not going to perish. We're going to live forever because we have hope in Jesus Christ. We have hope that the life of Christ is manifest in this mortal flesh. You are our hope. We live because of you and what you will become in Christ. Friends, that's enough. That's enough. It is enough hope if Christ is glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We do praise your wonderful name, Lord, for the relationships that are established with those that are in our church. What a great feeling is to know that we are loved by each other, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ, and that love has been put into our heart because of the relationship, first of all, that we have with Jesus. Because we have been saved and we have this relationship with Jesus Christ, then we are related to everybody who is in Him. And this is why believers can have that look in their eye, that love in their hearts, when they meet another one who knows you. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here today who hasn't met you in the saving mercy and grace of their salvation, that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. May they come to Jesus confessing their sins, repenting of their sins, and trusting Him alone for their salvation. Bless our dear people today. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.